Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study. It's good to have you together again. My friends from the Pendleton Center and the First United Methodist Churches, and also my friends from wherever you're gathering from, we're glad to have you here. Tonight, we're going to look at the book of Philippians. We're looking at different passages that talk to us about what it was like to be in exile or what it was like to be, uh, well, in a situation like what we're in. So tonight we're going to look at Philippians. It's towards the end of the Bible. Uh, in fact, if you go to Hebrews or Revelation, you've gone too far. It's between Galatians and Thessalonians. So uh, while you're finding your way there, and by the way, in every Bible, there's a table of contents, so you can actually look it up, all right? So we're going to start right at chapter 1, uh, and it is good to have you with us tonight. And this letter is from the Apostle Paul, and he's write, writing to the church at Philippi, which was a, a strong commercial center back then, and he's writing from prison. We suspect Paul is in prison in Rome. He could be facing a death sentence. And he writes these words to us, and in the context of being imprisoned, I, I suspect it was more like house arrest, but still he was facing a death penalty. We do know that he was eventually executed outside of Rome uh, under, under the emperor Nero. We think this was before then, but we're not sure. Well, of course it was before then, because he's obviously already, he was executed, he couldn't write it after. But what I mean is we think that he actually was imprisoned this time and then he was free and went to Spain and then came back to Rome and was imprisoned again. But it may be that these are the words he wrote as his last words before he died and left this world. So it's interesting as he's stuck, if you will, at home for a different reason than we are. But what does he think and what does he write to us? So it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy was Paul's protege. He's the next generation of leaders after, after Paul and the other apostles. And he's writing it to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, holy people could also be in, translated in some versions of the Bible as saints to all the saints. Anyone who is a Christian is considered a saint. Uh, and he's writing it to the people that are gathered in the church of Philippi, like I'm speaking to you as the church as I serve. And he's writing this, he says, together with the overseers and deacons. Overseers uh, were sometimes translated as bishop, sometimes simply as pastor. Uh, an overseer or a bishop was generally a pastor who was in charge of multiple pastors. Now, it could be a lot of pastors, like our bishop has hundreds, or it could have just been a handful, depending on how big their particular parish was. Some people could call me the bishop in Pendleton, although I wouldn't do that if I were you, because I have a bishop who might not like it. But anyways, the, the idea is, is that they had people who were overseeing multiple uh, clergy and multiple, possibly even congregations. The deacons were the people who were the lay leadership of the church. So even in the beginning of the church, there was a combination of leadership between those who were clergy and those who were lay people. Because it seems that there's always a balance between that. It's never meant to be all decided by the clergy or all decided by the lay people, but it's meant to be a partnership in ministry together. 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. We had that last week in the book from Revelation. Grace is what we receive from God when he forgives our sins. When he takes away the brokenness we have, it's a gift of God to forgive us for anything we've ever done wrong. And peace is when we receive and accept the Holy Spirit in our heart. It gives us a peace or a sense of calmness that the Bible says passes all understanding and only comes with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we use a, a, a little um, dove as a symbol of peace or world peace. Well, the dove comes from the Bible because the dove is actually the symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit and peace are synonymous. We gain real peace with the Holy Spirit in our heart. In verse 3, it says, I thank my God every... By the way, before I go to that, the way he greets people is something we should think about. He identifies who he is, and then he sends something as a blessing to them. Grace and peace to you, all right? Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Give people a blessing. Especially if you don't have something pleasant to say. That's something that Paul does here. But say something nice to people when you write a letter to them. People always like to hear something nice. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. I used to have a, a pastor named Bill Horn, and he told me he prayed for me every day. I bet some of you say that you pray for me every day. You don't know how much I appreciate that, to know that somebody is praying for us, thanking God, thinking about us every day. That's wonderful. He says he thanks God every time I remember you. Isn't that the way we want to re be remembered? That somebody thanks God for us, for who we are, for what we've done, for what we do. We thank God. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, he talks about that partnership between Paul, who is the, the clergy or the professional leader, and the lay people who are the volunteers who lead the church. And he thanks God because of that partnership. And, and he prays with joy. Again, it should be our goals in life that we would have people who remember us with joy. When people think of us, it brings a smile to their face. That's what God would want. That's what we should make as our goal, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We talked last week about the day of Christ Jesus or the day of judgment. Particularly, I talked about it in my Easter sermon. There'll be a day that we'll meet God. There'll be a day when this whole world will be restarted. And on that day, that day that, 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 that God will reclaim all of eternity and recreate this world, these people will be completion, completed in their faith. And he says that whoever began a good work will carry them to that completion. And the whoever, of course, is God. It's the Holy Spirit. The good news about God is, while he wants us to cooperate with what he's doing in us. If we let him, he'll do the work. 
We don't have to do the heavy lifting for change in our lives. If we want to change to what God wants us to become, all we have to do is let him work. He will change us. It is right, in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Since I have you in my heart, it's right for me to feel this way. Whether or not he's in chains or he's free, he shares God's grace and they share it with him. And Paul does this. God, in verse 8, he says, can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I have to say, this has been an interesting experience. And in some ways, I'm, I'm glad for the people who have expressed how they've come back to the church through this experience. Welcome. We're glad to have you back. I went through the friendship cards from, from our worship and our Bible studies and saw the comments of different people who said they were able to come back to church because of this ministry. But I, I really am longing for the day that we can be together again. That's the way it's supposed to be. The Bible says it's not good for people to be alone. And it's not good for us to be alone. We can share this way for now, but I look forward to the day when I will see you again. And, and that's what he's talking about. In verse 9, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless from the day for the day of Christ. This is my prayer. This is what I pray to God about, that your love may abound more and more. The more we spend time with God and we experience his love for us, his forgiveness, his acceptance of us, even in our brokenness, the more love abounds in us. It's hard to stay angry. It's hard to hold a grudge when God has forgiven us so much. That's a knowledge and a depth of insight into God. We can have the mind of Christ, the Bible tells us. If we want to have that, in verse 10, it goes on to say, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I'd love to get to a place where I'm pure and blameless, wouldn't, wouldn't you? It's not easy. We're only pure and blameless because of the grace of God. But we can get better. If we're not striving for better, what are we striving for? Verse 11, it says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And the fruit of righteousness could possibly be equated with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of righteousness is what happens in our lives when we live 
life right. Um, it's the benefit. Sin breaks our lives. Righteousness restores the good things to life. Some people think that um, when we become Christians, we miss out on all the fun. The truth is we miss out on all the brokenness, all the things that tear people apart. If you ever watch somebody who, who absolutely wallows and indulges in sin and brokenness, it doesn't take very long before their lives start to become dark and broken and unhealthy. That's just the process. So instead, we want the fruit of righteousness. Now, I want to note something else. Paul writes long, long sentences. So let me read that one sentence to you all at once. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Hello, take a breath, Paul. He doesn't do very good at ending sentences. That's why we have to break them down. In verse 12, he goes on to say, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. All things, this is written elsewhere, all things work for good for those who love the Lord. Uh, th this is not a good thing. I don't like being in, in this situation where we're worried as a culture about a, a virus killing people. But it has advanced the gospel. We can use this for good. And Paul says it's the same with him. In verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So he says, because he's in chains, other Christians are bolder and more confident. And even people who aren't Christians, the Roman soldiers, are learning about Christ. Is that how we'd see it if we were thrown in jail? How could we use this situation for God? How could we use this for good? Everything can work for good. We can look for the ways that we can make work of this. Somebody said, being home more, I'm getting closer to my family. Being home more, I'm spending more time in my faith. Being home more, I have the opportunity to make those phone calls or write those notes I always wanted to. We can use this opportunity for good. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former pre preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. There are people who are preachers, who are preachers for the benefit of others and are really trying to promote the gospel. And then there's some that quite honestly are just trying to promote themselves. Every profession, whether it be clergy, whether it be politicians, whether it be businessmen, whatever it might be, every profession has people that do it for their own selfish ambition and some people that do it to serve others. I'll talk more about that in my message Sunday. He says, but what does it matter in verse 18? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives or true, 
Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. I, I call this the gospel of joy because he uses the word rejoice and joy a lot. I love the book of Philippians. It's one of my favorite books of the, the Bible. And he says, it doesn't matter even if people have the wrong motives if the right results are happening. Isn't that fascinating? I had a friend of mine who was a pastor and he was laying in bed in a hospital. And he had some condition. I don't recall what it was. And he said he, he looked up and there was this, this guy on TV who was pretending to be a faith healer. This is his words. And he said, and he looked out of the TV screen and he said, there's a man laying in a hospital with such and such condition. He's being healed by God right now. Interestingly, my friend had that condition. And interestingly, when the doctors came in to check him again, it was gone. He'd been healed. He said, I know that man was a fake. I know it for certain. But God used him to heal me. Wow. God will make good things happen from any kind of brokenness, even broken people. And so in that, he says, he rejoices because God's will is done. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He believes that he will be delivered because of their prayers and because he stays in the spirit of Christ. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. So he's even willing to say, if he dies in the circumstance, it will work for the glory of God. Wow. Can we face life saying that even our death would be for the benefit of God? I have known people that I go to comfort and console in the hospital when they're dying, and they end up sharing their faith with me and, and helping me to feel better. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, that's very important, that little passage there in that section of Philippians. What Paul is saying to us is that glory is better. I've said that to you many times. When people say, better than the alternative, the answer is, no, it's not. No, it's not. I'm not afraid of the coronavirus. I'm not afraid of dying. Not in the least. I know that I go to glory, which is better than this world. But I also know that God has some reason for me to be here. There are people in this world that depend on me. There are people that need to know the gospel that I need to spend time with. There are, there are things that I need to be doing. And I know you might say, well, I don't know what my life's purpose is. I don't seem to have much purpose. Everyone can be doing something that matters. Pick up the telephone. Get out a, a pen and paper and, and write a note or two to people. There are things that everyone can do to be 
good and valuable for God. And God intends for us to have that value. And that's why we stay. That's why God has left this creation in place because he's being patient for us to have the time to share the gospel with others. I got a long way to go and I'm going to try to get there tonight. So we're going to keep on going. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. <laughs> Do what would be worthy of Jesus. You should live as if you believe Jesus is walking with you every moment because he is. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. I'll know it because I'll hear about it without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Now he's talking about Judgment Day again. On Judgment Day will be sorted out. Those with God will go on his right. Those without will go on his left. 29, it says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ Jesus, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's been granted that you suffer for Jesus. Nobody wants to suffer. But if we're suffering for God, if we're struggling, and, and it's hard, but it's for God. It's not a bad thing. He suffered for us. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We all have similar struggles. We're going to chapter 2, and it says, we're in Philippians, in case you're joining us late. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you are feeling any of these good things about being connected to God, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in the spirit and one in mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, in humility, this is tough, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. I say this when people get married. Watching out for one another, completing one another, being there for each other. Considering other people and their welfare more important than our own is not an easy thing. We're born in some ways very selfish and self-centered. But if we remember who God is in us, if we have that combination and that connection with God, then we should have that same love, he's saying. Not doing things out of vain conceit, but looking after each other's interests. Can you imagine a world where you don't have to worry about yourself because somebody else is watching your back while you're watching theirs? That's what a good marriage is. That's what a good friendship is. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. In the church, it's said this way. The church serves Christ and Christ serves the church. We both do it out of love. 
In verse 5 it says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So think the way Jesus did. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So Jesus lowered himself down to nothing, which is who we are, and being like a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was willing to die for our salvation. And that death was was God's death to perfection, and he was willing to do this for us. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's a little song, by the way. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a song that we know, but it's a song when it was written originally. That God, being willing to give of himself, to surrender who and what he was, to humble himself so that we could live and was lifted up because of it, that's the example we should have of how we should treat one another. That's not easy. We have a lot of people out there doing that. You know, there's people that go and work in the grocery store, not because they need the money, but because grocery stores need them. There's people going to the hospital. Some of them retired, and they go back to the hospital because the hospital needs them to care for other people, not because they need to. They're retired. There's people willing to sacrifice, and we need to be willing to do that too. Therefore, my dear friends, in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a, so many famous lines from this passage, this book. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, remember the part about cooperating with God, cooperating in grace? We need to cooperate. We need to work with God. One bishop said it this way, pray as if it all depends on God, but work as if it all depends on yourself. With fear and trembling. We need to remember, God is the one that holds all of eternity. We don't have to be afraid of him because perfect love casts out fear, but, but, but that fear is really meant to be the respect we should have for a God who can change our destiny forever. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So God's intention of changing and transforming us is so that God's will will be done. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I don't know if we do anything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He's writing back then, 2,000 years ago. We live in a warped and crooked generation, amen? We have people who are struggling and everything, and he says, just go through life without grumbling or arguing. We don't need to live that way. We don't need to be like the brokenness around us. 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firm to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. Because by living this way, by living as people who don't grumble and don't blame and aren't arguing, that means that we will stand out from the common. People notice the difference and glorify God. He says in verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Again, that word rejoice. He's always talking about rejoice. Rejoice. He's in chains. And he's rejoicing. We're just stuck in the house. And we complain and grumble. He's telling us we need to hold to that faith. And we need to work out our salvation in such a way that people see the difference in us. In verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. People went almost like couriers between the different towns to tell the stories. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Hmm. It's a shame. We don't think about ourselves or we only think about ourselves and not about what Jesus wants. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because a son of his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Timothy is a man who's selfless. That's a huge thing to say about someone. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, as soon as I can spare him. And in verse 24, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He believes he's going to be freed. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Aphroditus. Aphroditus. Okay. Why can they call him Sam or Joe or Bill, right? My brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So the people of Philippi actually paid for a guy to go take care of Paul. <laughs> Think about that. They knew Paul needed help, so they sent somebody to take care of him, and Paul's now sending him back. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. So evidently, they sent this guy to help Paul, but he ended up getting sick, so it sounds like Paul's got to take care of him. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Or in other words, he, he, he got through his sickness, and that's good because otherwise Paul would have been blamed. Just saying, that's what he seems to say. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety, worrying about what you're going to say about me. Sometimes when people try to do something nice for us, it turns around back on them, or you try to do something nice for someone else. It doesn't turn out to be nice. We need to 
remember why people try to do that. The motives of the Philippian church were good. They didn't send this man to be a burden on Paul or to cause him anxiety. They sent him to help. A lot of times we have people trying to help. Maybe they're not as helpful as they, as they could be, but they're trying and we need to recognize their motives or their intent. It says, to welcome him in the Lord, in verse 29, and, greet, and gr- with great joy, with great joy, is that joy again, and honor, be, and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So he actually took his, his life in his hands by risking his health to help Paul on their behalf because he couldn't go. Chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There it is again. Rejoice. Say rejoice. Say it with me. Rejoice. See what happens when you say rejoice or joy. It makes you smile. It's a good word. You should say it a lot. You should just walk around going, joy, rejoice. You could even use hallelujah if you want. Hallelujah. See? Chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Sounds like he wrote a letter before. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Okay, um, skip that last line a minute. So there's some people who are pushing the idea that people need to be circumcised. It was a Jewish ritual. Uh, they often did it at the age of eight days old, okay? Babies don't remember that. But doing it when you're grown up, that's a different story. So there are a lot of people who want to follow God, but they didn't want to be circumcised. In the Roman world, there were about 20 million, about 3 million Jews and about 20 million what they called God-fearers, people that want to follow the Jewish faith except being, being circumcised. And these people were saying, you have to be circumcised. You have to have... Um, You have to have that right of circumcision to be a part of faith in God. But what they're saying in here is that uh, we don't have to have that actual ritual of circumcision for God to, for it to be a part of God's kingdom. Just had somebody come in. So just, that's why I was turning around here. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now he's getting to the point of the, the confidence in the flesh, is that he himself, of course, was circumcised. He was raised Jewish. And he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. All right. So he's saying he's got good bloodlines. He was a Hebrew. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He knows his, his roots. He also was a Pharisee. Okay? Pharisees were people that were very conservative about, about keeping the rules. They felt very strongly that they had to keep all the Jewish rules, uh, and, and they were very strict in their observance. We have Christians like that, too. Almost legalistic about it. Well, they were legalistic about it. As for zeal, 
persecuting the church. He actually, in his early years, Paul, uh, as a Jew, persecuted the church. He actually was part of a movement to wipe out the Christian faith. Not that he felt good about that. He's not bragging about it. He's saying he's as Jewish as Jewish comes, even to the point of being part of a movement to persecute the Jewish people. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. That's verse 6. And he's saying, according to the Jewish laws, he's done nothing wrong. Now, we would say, how could that be? No one can, is that good. And that's true. And Paul wouldn't claim that he was perfect. He, he wouldn't claim that he didn't need grace. But he was the kind of person who had spent his life trying to make sure he did as little wrong as possible. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was the same way. He hardly did anything wrong. His, his, uh, his confessor used to say, you know, Brother Martin, when you come in for confession, you come in here to, to, to confess that you passed gas or something, go out and do something really wrong so you have something to confess. But what Martin Luther found out and what Paul found out, both found out, is that we are never good enough even if we are about as righteous as somebody could be in this culture, we're never good enough. Because somewhere we're wrong. Jesus said, if you look at a person with less than your eyes, it's the same as committing adultery. If you get angry with someone, it's the same as committing murder. None of us are good. Maybe Paul had kept the rules and the laws, but it, did he keep the spirit of the law? Did he keep his heart perfect? No. And he would have said so too. And then you have people like me. Uh, over the years, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've failed. I still fail. I see the brokenness in my life. Now, I'm not confessing to all of you some horrible thing that if you find out, you're going to kick me out of the church or something. I don't mean that. I'm just saying that I know that I am only a sinner saved by grace. I am only made good because God gave me the gift of forgiving me. That's a gift all of us can have, no matter who we are. And Paul's saying, no matter how perfect he was, in verse 7, he says, whatever were gains to me, I've considered loss for the sake of Christ. Compared to the grace of Jesus Christ, as good and perfect as he'd been, is like a failure. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. All things. I am worthless compared to knowing God. Everything I've ever accomplished in life is nothing compared to the value of having God in my life. Knowing you, Jesus, it is the greatest thing. You're my all. You're my best. You're my joy, my righteousness. It is everything. Nothing you do in life will be better than this. Nothing. Greatest accomplishment. Greatest decision. In fact, he says, I consider everything I've done 
garbage that I might gain Christ. In verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The only real righteousness is by the forgiveness that comes from God because we have faith. We firmly believe that God will forgive us. I have faith in God. And God is always faithful. And he forgives my sins, my brokenness. And that's the greatest thing of all. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he's willing to even die like Jesus did, and he won't. He'll die. Actually, had his head chopped off, which sounds terrible, but that was the merciful way of dying in an execution by the Romans. He was a Roman citizen. Peter, the great apostle, the same time, died by being hung upside down on a cross. That's why the, the Petrin cross is an upside down cross. So if you see one of those, it's Peter's cross. That's not what most people think. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. We're in Easter season. The power of Jesus' resurrection is that all the things we used to think were important are gone and we've been resurrected to a new set of priorities, a new way of seeing life. Being like him in death. Dying to the things of this world so that we can gain resurrection and that resurrection happens in the day of judgment where we live forever because of our faith in God and that's a, an essential resurrection but it's also resurrection of our life now and here that all of a sudden everything changes all the priorities are different if we could get the world to change their priorities and stop living for selfishness and stop worrying about what they're going to get so that we're all looking after each other's needs and concerns and, and, and we're trying to figure out how to make everything better and people more loved, the world would be a better place. Verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's, that's important. Paul doesn't feel he's reached a stage of perfection. In the Wesleyan uh, faith, we have something we call the doctrine of perfection. We believe that for a short time, or maybe a little longer, we can actually be made perfect in this world. I'm even asked when I was ordained if I was going on to perfection and if I expect to be made perfect. I do expect it. When, when I say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven in worship over the weekend, and you say back to me that my sins are forgiven because we are the body of Christ and I represent you and you represent Christ, we can forgive each other's sin and we are perfect. Till we go out in the parking lot and we see somebody scratched our car and they're like, ah! right? 
we don't necessarily hold that perfection, maybe for a few hours, maybe for a few days. Paul is striving for that. He, he, he wants to take hold of what God took hold of him for. Remember what I said, God will do the work. We don't have to do all the work. God takes hold of our lives and he heads us in the right direction. And Paul is saying he wants to get there. It's his goal to become what God wants him to be. Is that, the, is that your goal? Or do we get confused by all the other things people say we need to spend our time, our efforts, our work on? Verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He makes it sound like a, an athletic competition, like he's, he's running the race. He uses that language elsewhere. or He's striving to accomplish. And he keeps working and working at it. There was a time when I was an athlete when you went into training. You had to work hard. You had to condition your body. You had to learn things in your mind. You had to study things. You had to make it a reflective, reflexive action so that you didn't think about when you did something. It just became repetitive. It happened naturally because the more you practiced it, the more it just became natural. It's like when I play the guitar. I don't think about where my fingers need to go for the chords. They just go there. If you do something long enough, it just becomes, becomes a part of who you are. And that's what... what Paul is saying we need to work that hard. We need to strive like an athlete would condition their body, condition their mind, practice and rehearse over and over and over again so that when we're faced with the challenge, we do what Jesus would want us to do. That's why we call them disciplines. We're disciplining our, bottle, our bodies, our lives, our minds. Being disciples means we're working diligently and hard to achieve the goal. In verse 15, it says, and my goal is to finish this book, so we're going to see. <laughs> In verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view on things. He can be, he can be a real jerk. Well, if you're mature like me. <laughs> but he's right. Uh, there are Christians that are Christians because they've just come to understand that they could be saved from eternal damnation or because they just experienced the Holy Spirit and they're, they're just filled with the warmth and fire of that or, or they just came to feel the love of God and of other people. But when we're mature, we should understand that the goal is to get to what God wants us to be. Not what we want, not what we gain, but what we can give. And if on some point you think differently than me, listen to this, that too God will make clear to you. <laughs> so if you disagree with me, God will straighten you out. He certainly has a full sense of who he thinks he is. Only let, I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> Only let us live up to what we have already attained but at least don't get any worse. Don't fall backwards in your faith. So in verse 17, he says, 
join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Isn't that interesting? Do you feel that you could write that to people? Live like I do. Love like I do. Act like I do. Be faithful like I am. Do you feel that you could be that kind of example to people? That's what God is calling us to do. Not only to be that, but to be confident that we are that. Verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people that really do not want God, not only in their life, but in our world. They literally are against God. Verse 19, he says, their destiny is destruction. They will end up in the lake of fire. Their God is their stomach. Hmm. What makes us feel good? In our culture, that's become our God. What makes us feel good is the goal in life. Paul said he he's, he he's looks to suffer like Jesus. We don't look to suffer at all. We just want to feel good. We've turned it into our God. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. It's fascinating how people brag about things they should be ashamed of. They put it on YouTube. They put it on the Internet, bragging about what they should be ashamed of. It's a strange culture turned upside down. Their mind is set on earthly things. I suppose if you don't have the presence of God, that's what you see. But our citizenship is in heaven. We're members of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming in glory. And his, his coming will be the day that we will all be made right. We all, and, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So the Bible tells us that when we die, we receive new bodies. In, in one place it says they'll be like angels. We aren't angels. That's It's a Wonderful Life. We talked about that last week. We don't become angels, but we get bodies that are new. Or they become like Jesus' glorious body. We get a whole new way of living. And that's what happens when, when, when the new creation comes. So the new creation will be a physical existence where we'll actually live in this world, but the world will be perfect, the brokenness will be taken away, and we'll have new bodies. We'll be able to eat anything we want, no cholesterol, no calorie, no sugar, no problems at all, no health issues. We won't gain weight, and we can go back and eat again. I don't know. I'm just making that up. But we won't be broken anymore. No more sorrow or pain or mourning or crying, for that order of things will have passed away. That's what Revelation 21 tells us. Okay, this is the fourth chapter. It's the last chapter. We're going to get through this whole book tonight. Letter of Philippians. This is the best chapter. Chapter 4 is the best. Verse 4 of chapter 4 is the best. 4 4. Philippians 4 4. But this is the best part. My brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. My joy and my crown. In some ways, the churches I serve are my joy and my crown. I understand what Paul's saying. He's writing to one of the churches he served. I brag about you. Your faith, your excitement about Jesus, what you bring to this world and this community is outstanding. The love you show each other, the love you show for people around you and outside this church. You take up more, more gifts for, for offerings for, to help people outside the church and to do good things. And you feed the poor in other cities. In many ways, you're my joy and my crown. I do want to take away from my family and, and, and that side of things. Of course, they're my joy as well. But Paul's talking about his church, and I understand it. All right? And he wants them to stand with what they were taught. I hope that some of the things that I've taught will stay with you for the rest of your lives. That's, that's my goal. Churches, the buildings, the organizations, they come and go. But what we plant in someone's heart remains forever. And they pass it along to others. And it goes on and on and on through the circle of life. Verse 2 of chapter 4, I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. To be of the same mind. Evidently, these two have been fighting with each other. <laughs> he wants them to stop fighting. Christians fight. Christians get in arguments. And when they do that, they struggle. And that doesn't look good for other Christians. I'm going to be back in just a second. I've got to get a drink of water. Excuse me. I apologize. I'm back. You can't talk for an hour without having something to drink or something like that. And I didn't bring something with me. So my apologies. I'm back. Now. We were talking, i put this on right, there we go. We were talking about Syntec and Eudea and the fact that, that they weren't getting along together. Now, I find that interesting. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So these are Christians, but they don't agree. You think Christians all have to agree? Do you think that everybody has to belong to the same political party? Do you think that we can never disagree about issues around our faith or our theology? Of course we can. So all Paul is saying is, is we have to remember that we disagree, but we disagree in love. One of the things I love about this, this uh, ministry is that we have people that don't agree at all. People that come from very different sides of arguments. Arguments within the church, arguments outside the church. But you see, we find the truth by being around people that don't always agree with us. 
because it's in being with people who don't always agree with us that we see things that change our minds. If all we do is stay in the same echo chambers with the people that think exactly like us, we'll never hear anything new. So it's not bad that they were um, that they were disagreeing, that they didn't have a complete and entire, entirely uh, identical belief system. But the problem is, is that they were fighting over it. And he's saying they shouldn't do this because we're all on the same team. And then chapter 4, verse 4, remember I said this is the best one. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Remember, your mouth smiles, rejoice. Rejoice. Paul is in prison. He could be facing a death sentence. He's not able to do what he wants. He can't go out and about. But he's still filled with joy. You know, this coronavirus thing has caused a lot of people a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems. So a lot of things we can't do. We can't just go and do whatever we want. And we can use this to just be miserable or we can look for places of joy. Paul says, rejoice always. Whether in good times or bad, whether in brokenness or in healing, no matter what your condition, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Remember when they used to call um, men gentlemen? Because a real man knows that they don't need to bluster and push and be forceful. They know that they can be gentle, that there's, there's more strength in holding back and not pushing your agenda, not forcing your agenda, but being gentle and soft. People will listen to that more. It's not weakness. In fact, it's a strength that's greater than, than people that, that are blustering. And why? Because God is near. Every, he's always watching. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. It's okay. God is still in control of the universe. He still cares about you and about me. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. It's okay to say, God, would you change this? It's okay to say, God, make this virus go away. It's okay to say, uh, God, help these people that are struggling. It's okay to say, God, help me when I'm struggling. But we need to do it, it says, with thanksgiving. We need to remember what God has already done for us. And instead of always looking for what God can do for us, we need to thank him for what he's already done for us. And he's done a lot. If you're even alive and here, he's done a lot. Verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace, which is the Holy Spirit of God, guards our hearts and our minds because we're in God. The Holy Spirit will make sure that your heart doesn't get in the wrong place and that your mind isn't thinking the wrong things. If we allow God into our heart, if we accept the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes everything. Brothers and sisters, verse 8, 
whatever, I like this, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. I don't think we need to describe what, what it means to be right or noble or pure or lovely. Think about these things. Think about all the good things. Think about the blessings. Think about the, 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 the joys. Think about the wonders. Think about the good stuff of life. Have too much bad stuff. Television seems to be going 24-7 now. Rona! I like to turn it off and watch something else. Somebody, and this was interesting because it was a news person, said she only watched about a half an hour a day of this. <laughs> he was on the half hour network news, okay? They're trying to make money by ratings to get you to watch this stuff, and the way they do it is by making you super anxious so that you watch more of this stuff. Got to watch Como in the morning. Got to watch The President at night. Got to watch all this stuff as they go on and on and on and on and on and on about making us anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. Get stuff that's pure and lovely and, and true and noble and admirable and praiseworthy and put it in your life. Verse 9, whatever you have, you, you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul, again, has that um, sense of himself that he feels he's a good example. I probably would say something like, if you've ever seen me do some good things and there's things that you think are admirable about me, do more of that. That stuff that you don't really admire so much about me, ignore that. <laughs> Can we be such a good example that we'd hold ourselves up to others? Paul does. We should be able to do that as well. And he says, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace, not the God of destruction and terror and horror. God doesn't want to be that. He wants to be the God of your peace. Verse 10, I rejoiced greatly. Rejoice again. Rejoice. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. You hear this? I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. This is important stuff. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Now, some people have never had plenty, and some people have never been in need. But if you've had need, you've, you've been short and you've had plenty and I've been that I know what Paul's talking about I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want you want to know what the secret is I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength whether I'm having problems I need God to give me strength whether I am doing well, I need God to give me the strength to do things well in a good way. I can do all things. If I take my focus off of me and my only focus is on Christ and all I'm trying to do is please Christ, I will be content regardless of what I have. Contentment is good. Complacency is when we don't want to do anymore. Um, it leads to laziness. That's not good. Contentment 
means that I will be happy whatever my situation. Years ago, um, Pastor Sherry was showing a video to the teenagers, and, and in the video it showed people from a country in Africa that had almost nothing. They, they, they didn't even know where their meal was going to come from every day. But they had Jesus in their life, and they were smiling and dancing and happy and singing. Then they showed people from the United States who didn't have the latest iPhone or the latest whatever, and they were miserable because of what they didn't have because they couldn't be content. Contentment is not about what you have. It's about who you are. Contentment is not about what you have. It's about whose you are. Children of God. Find contentment. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. It was kind of you to think of me. Moreover, as you Philippines know, in the early Philippians, I said Philippines, sorry about that. In verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except only you. Now the rest of the churches gave him a salary. He was the only one. They were the only church that helped. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Paul actually was independently wealthy, but sometimes he needed help too. And this church took care of him. And you know, you notice. You notice the people that are there when you're struggling, when you have a problem. Because they're Jesus. They're Jesus to us when we're struggling. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Not that Paul lived off the Philippians or needed to, but he wanted them to be blessed by God. I receive full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Their fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. He's thanking them for helping him. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God will take care of us. We can't outgive God. Somebody once said that, and that's the truth. Do we have a theology of scarcity or a theology of abundance? It's fascinating that God can make something out of nothing, and yet we're afraid that we're going to end up with nothing when we worship a God that can make something out of nothing. It's kind of like the U.S. Treasury. They just keep printing money. It just makes money out of nowhere. Like that. <laughs> to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that's actually the end of the letter, but Paul writes a little postscript. He says, Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. And God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Isn't that interesting? So the Roman soldiers he was talking about earlier are thanking the Philippians for helping Paul to have come to them to preach the gospel because he got sent there in chains. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And remember how I talked about you should begin a letter by saying something good? should end a letter with a blessing as well. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your soul tonight and always. Amen. We could end there, but I just want to share with you that God is with us. 
God is blessing us even in the midst of our struggles and our difficulties. God will be our strength. And even though we know that we've had people who have died, people who are um, struggling, people who are sick, God is still our answer. And he will answer us in this life or the next for our faithfulness in him. So let's pray together, shall we? Dear God in heaven, we thank you for the blessings you give to us. We thank you for sharing all of life with us. We thank you that you give us what we need. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us not to struggle and worry about the things we want. Bless those we love. Help them all to find the peace of Jesus Christ. Bless our church and bless our community that people might be healed of this virus and that it might go away and that you might give us the courage and the strength to live again for you. Touch us and help us to rejoice always and forever and again and again. Be our peace and our strength. Be love to those who are feeling lonely. For we pray this all in Jesus' name who said to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now, may God bless you. May God keep you safe. Go in his peace. Amen.